That's good. Return to Kufiotes. The study of this remarkable longest chapter in the book of Tehillim. Today we begin the letter Pei. Psalm 119, verse 129. David HaMelech, King David intones, Pelois ed voisecha. The word Pelois is typically thought of within the framework of a Pella. A Pella is a wonder. Like, for example, people say, Nisim v'niflaot. Miracles and wonders. A wonder is the kind of thing that makes you open your mouth. It astonishes you. I don't know that that's what this means, though. I just thought I'd share with you that the word plaot is a permutation of the word pele. Plaot, for lack of better terminology, let's translate it as wondrous. Eidvosecha are your testimonies. Alkain, therefore, or perhaps as such, nitzorosam nafshi, does my soul guard them? So there are three basic issues which we will try to address in this class. Number one, what is the meaning of the word plaot? Does it really mean wondrous? Are we giving God a compliment? Hey God, your mitzvahs, how wonderful. What does that mean? Secondly, it doesn't say plaot mitzvotecha. It doesn't say your mitzvahs are wondrous. It says edvotecha. Your testimonies. Why are your testimonies wondrous or wonderful? The second thing we'll have to understand is the fact that it says Alkane. This is the reason for. Because Plaot Edvotecha, because there's something wondrous about God's testimonies, Alkane, therefore Nitzaratam Nafshi. That's why my soul guards them. What does mitzvahs being wonderful have to do with David HaMelech's making the extra effort to guard the mitzvot? That's the question. So I hope that we will be able to leave this class understanding, number one, the meaning of plot, number two, the and number three, why that's a cause for David HaMelech to guard the mitzvahs. So let us begin our journey. Firstly, whenever to try and understand the meaning of the words of the book of Tehillim, we should try to understand them on the level of pshat. Pshat means the straightforward meaning. So for example, the Torah tells us that God said to Avraham, lech lecha, on a level of pshat, it was time for Avraham Avinu to pack his bags and leave town. And if you will say, much more to it than a man named Abraham 37 centuries ago, being told to pack his bags and leave town, I won't argue with you, but that's still the pshat. That's still the straightforward, simple meaning. So the first thing we need to establish is what is the straightforward meaning of this verse? And then we can look at it madrashically and allegorically. Rashi will be our first stop. Rashi says, Plaot edvotecha. Mechusim heim. They are concealed. The word mechusim is plural, like the word kisui, singular, which means a cover. Mechusim heim, they are concealed. Rashi goes on and says, viniflaim, and they are wondrous. Wondrous, he says, viniflaim edvotecha mebne adam. Your testimonies are wondrous to people or perhaps beyond people. Like sometimes you ask somebody, how'd you do that? I'm amazed. That's like, a, are you a magician? Are you a miracle worker? How'd you do that? 
it's wondrous in people's eyes. It doesn't mean just wonderful or that's really cool or nice. It means there's something that's beyond what I can wrap my head around. In English, unfathomable, inexplicable. And Rashi goes on and he says to illustrate his point, what is the meaning of your mitzvahs are unfathomable or your mitzvahs leave me astonished? Your mitzvahs are things that I really can't, I can't understand. Yesh mitzvot kalot. Rashi says there are what he calls lightweight mitzvahs. Mitzvahs that are not considered by the vast majority of the Jewish people or by virtue of Torah literature to be a mainstay of Judaism, not foundational. They're mitzvahs. They're important. Every mitzvah is important. But it's not like the five or ten biggies that you must make sure that you're keeping these mitzvahs. You have to keep all the mitzvahs. It's a mitzvah kala. This is a, a mitzvah that's less onerous, that places less stress or duress upon the Jewish people to perform or fulfill them. Not the mitzvahs that are seemingly almost impossible for so many people to entertain their fulfillment. Like people will say, I can't keep Shabbat. Rabbi, what are you, a, a shtetl creature? What are you, stuck in an Why don't you modern up? You gotta make sure the parking lot's open. You gotta make sure people can, can get around. What are you, what are you, what's with you? It, it's, it's too difficult. It really is too difficult, but it's easy for me to say. I was raised, Baruch Hashem, keeping Shabbat. I never got tasted, thank God, the meaning of violation of Shabbat. For somebody who never observed the Shabbat, it seems to be very onerous, very difficult, very challenging. And by the way, <laughs> very foundational. In fact, it's the mitzvah, the mitzvah, that becomes defining insofar as your Jewishness. There are no labels in Torah. Labels are for slacks and pants, for blouses and shirts. Not for people. But the only label that we do find is a Shomer Shabbat. Foundational mitzvah. So then there are mitzvahs which are not in the category of Shabbat. And yet, despite the fact that they're not very foundational, heavy mitzvahs, so to speak, Hirbeta b'matan scharam. God promises a profusion of reward, an extraordinary amount of recompense for the observance of this mitzvah. And Rashi chooses a very interesting example, and I think he chooses this because the Gemara calls it a mitzvah kala. The Gemara calls it a lightweight mitzvah. Kigon, for example, Rashi says, Shiluach hakein. This is the mitzvah that mandates that if we wish to take eggs from a nest, we first send away the mother bird. Or if you wish, to take the small chicks when the mother is hovering above them. You should not exploit the mother's natural connection or love or affinity for her young ones. And as such, tear them away from the mother and bring the mother great pain. But instead you shoo away the mother bird and then you can take the offspring. Not a very difficult mitzvah to do. Our sages call it a mitzvah which is like a pennies worth, an iser, a nickel. It's a nickel mitzvah. It's not a very difficult mitzvah. You're going to take the eggs, or shoo away the mother bird first. And yet, we find that the Torah gives extraordinary level of reward for it. By the way, those, the reward is a long life. And most people I know would like to live long. So the mitzvah seems relatively trivial, and yet, the Torah ascribes major reward to it. This then would be Rashi's point. The word Pela means that there's something about this mitzvah that's beyond what meets the eye. In fact, there's something about many mitzvot that are beyond what meet our eye. And that's why we call it Pla'ot. David HaMelech said, your mitzvahs are wondrous, which means your mitzvahs are concealed. They're unfathomable. I cannot understand the value and the virtue of particular mitzvahs. Which doesn't really help us understand why Al-Kain Nitzorasim Nafshi, but this is a beginning. Now, it's interesting that Mitzudis David and Mitzudis Tzien essentially follow the same line of reasoning as Rashi. 
The Mitzudot Zion, which focuses on verbiage, says plaot, he doesn't even use the word, he doesn't use the terminology of what we would call nifla. He says the word plaot is to be understood here in this syntax as, and I'm going to quote, mechusa v'ne'elam, concealed and hidden. The mitzvah is considered concealed and hidden. Kimo, for example, v'hupeli. This is a, translated as this is a wonder, but this is beyond me. It's a pasuk of verse in the book of Judges. So Mitzudasian is very clear about not interpreting this word at a pshat level as wondrous or wonderful, but rather beyond fathomability. Something that I can't wrap my head around. The Mitzudas David follows very much the line of explanation and elucidation that Rashi assumes. He says, Ha-mitzvot The mitzvot, their virtue, their impact, their importance, it's really covered. We do not know their reward or recompense. The Mitzudah's David, however, now seeks to explain the meaning, the words al-kain, therefore. He says, because we don't know the value of a mitzvah, al-kain nitzaratam nafshi, that's why my soul guards them. Ki mi who is to know which mitzvah might actually be of major importance. You know, there's this idea. It's a Baal Shem Tavonian idea. That every soul comes to this world with a specific mission. So there's the general mandate that all of us have, if we're members of the Jewish people of Am Yisrael, and, and that is to Try to live by the code of Jewish law. We should pray daily. We should study Torah daily. We should eat kosher food. Our homes should have mezuzahs affixed to the doorpost. We should give tzedakah. We should be engaged in charitable and righteous giving on a daily basis. We should, we should treat our fellows with love, ahavat Yisrael. We should eat kosher food only. We should marry. And we should live with a state of purity, which means to follow the laws that our marriages should be essentially ordained according to Torah. These are the things we're all responsible to do. And every neshama that comes down to this world is expected to fulfill the mitzvahs. But then the Baal Shem Tov says that there might, or in fact should and must be, a particular mission that every neshama here is here for. In fact, there's an adage which is quoted in Hayom Yom, in the name of Reb Mordechai HaTzadik, one of the eldest and most esteemed disciples of the Baal Shem Tev. He said that an Ashama can come down to this world for 70 or 80 years just to do a favor for another. And there's a story attached to it of a person who was in a position that he had to do somebody a really big favor. And he did the favor and he died shortly afterwards. And the Baal Shem Tev said that was his whole purpose for being here on planet Earth. That's the reason the neshama had to assume a corporeal reality. And then there are these ideas of neshamot that are connected to past lives called Gilgul. Not that you or I ever lived before, but the things we do make a difference to other neshamot. And that doesn't have to be spooky. Your behavior and my behavior make a difference to our spouses. Our behavior makes a difference to our children. It makes a difference to our parents. It makes a difference to our grandparents. So you're going to say, that's not fair. That's not fair. <laughs> if somebody's grandchild is behaving appropriately, why should they suffer? It's a really good question, but that's a fact. If somebody's grandchild committed a terrible act, the grandparents are pulling their hair out. They're so ashamed and embarrassed. They have tremendous heartache. Father Abraham passed away five years early, so we shouldn't have to have the pain of seeing his grandson Esau become a murderer. We necessarily impact each other. What you do will affect people in your circle, in your community, and sometimes even on a global level. 
It's not really about fear. It's not, it doesn't work that way. I mean, World War I was started by one lunatic who shot the nephew of the, of, of the, of the, the Kaiser. So people have an impact on other people. I'm talking about people who are alive at the same time. And Torah literature extends and expands this idea to us being able to have an impact on past lives. Just to illustrate this point, let me share a story. The Alter Rebbe once told two people a story. The story was about a coach person and a business person. There were no motorized vehicles, and to get from point A to point B, you had to ride in a coach. And oftentimes, to do business, since you didn't have the Zoom opportunity, or you couldn't have virtual meetings, you actually had to be there. You had to pick up the merchandise, because there weren't trucking companies, and there were no trains that were going across cross country to deliver merchandise. So people had to go somewhere, inspect merchandise, choose the merchandise, pay for the merchandise, transport the merchandise, and this was a whole industry. An industry, by the way, that's long gone, but a new industry replaced it. As often is the case with the shifting of economics. So in this particular time, in this particular area, coach people and business people had a unique relationship in which the coach people made a living by transporting the well-coiffed business people from place to place, from destination to destination. And the business people, by virtue of their travel several times a year, were able to make a nice profit. So the story goes that there is a Jewish business person and a Jewish coach person, and they're traveling, and it's Friday morning. And you know, we just talked about Shabbat, that's a very important thing. And so they stop at a particular town, and there was no Google and no Waze, but they inquired about the next town, and it was doubtful if they could make it there in a timely way for Shabbat. So unusually, they decided to stop early. Usually they travel till late afternoon or an hour or two before the Shabbat. But here they are, settling into town, and Shabbat is not coming for another three, four, maybe five hours. And so the coach person dropped off the business person in the nicest hotel in town, and he went to Motel 6, or its equivalent. The wealthy business person headed off for the bathhouse to prepare for Shabbat. The coach person prepared for Shabbat as well, and he ended up going to the shul. He wasn't much of a scholar, but he figured he could read some Tehillim, some Psalms. And so he makes himself comfortable, and he looks around, and the etiquette in those days was that the beggars really lived hand-to-mouth. I don't know if you could make it a perfect corollary with today's homelessness, but it was, there were some very, very sorry figures in the shtetl world in the 18th century. And these people really didn't get a meal. But on Friday night, on Friday night they ate like kings because on Friday night everybody opened their homes. And people would invite, not people they know, real guests, beggars, they would open their homes. That's how people lived in the shtetl. They were really generous. They lived in an open way. Now the coach person who's staying in a little motel and doesn't have much food, whatever he's able to afford for Shabbat, thinks to himself, hmm, I could have guests. I'm in shul early. And so he walks over to these beggars and he says, do you people have what to eat tonight? And they take a look at this guy and they're like, we don't want to go with him. But they don't want to offend him either. And they said, no. And so he invited a whole group of beggars to join him in his motel room. What he had was like some herring and black bread, but he was going to share it. It's very sweet, very nice. In the meanwhile, the business person was heading off to the bathhouse, and he came upon somebody struggling with a horse and a wagon. It's actually a mitzvah when you see an animal struggling and an owner trying to put the load. Now, he knew how to ride in the coach, but not how to deal with the horses. Well, the story was that he tried to help. Whether he helped or not is very doubtful, but as the story goes, he was coming back from the mikvah wearing his Shabbos finery, and by the time this was finished, it didn't look like Shabbos finery anymore, and he showed up in shul filthy, dirtied, not having accomplished much, feeling really low. He had nice food back at his hotel, but there were no guests available. And these 
said the Alter Rebbe, were two neshamas hatoyes, were two souls that were lost, because each one did the other one's job. The one who was wealthy was supposed to be inviting the guests and feeding them. The one who was adept at dealing with horses and wagons was supposed to be the one helping the person who was stuck in the muck and the mire. And so the Alter Rebbe told these two individuals, this time, please get it right. That is to say that when it comes to mitzvahs, when it comes to mitzvahs, none of us know which is the mitzvah. And as the Mitzudas puts it here, it's not only none of us know which is the mitzvah. There could be a mitzvah, which our sages would call, it's a mitzvah of an iser, mitzvah of a nickel or a dime. It's a mitzvah which is called kala, but that doesn't mean in God's eyes that this mitzvah isn't extraordinarily important. So the Mitzudas says, David HaMelech had to acknowledge, Ploys. If you know which mitzvahs are important or which are not, you'd know which one to devote your attention to. But precisely because, ploy, said Vesecha, because it's concealed, because it's covered, because it's a mystery. As such, says David HaMelech, Al-Kain, therefore, Nitzorasim Nafshi, I guard every mitzvah. Because you never know. You never know which is your mitzvah. And you never know which mitzvah is really important. Now, for full disclosure, I must tell you, I am coloring this with the story of the Baal Shem Tev in your particular mitzvah. The Mitzvah's David doesn't say that. The David says that you don't know the value of a mitzvah. I am hopefully not erroneously adding another level of mystique to the mitzvah. In addition to the mystique of mitzvahs in general, there could even be a mystique with regard to the individual. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I'm just adding that. The bottom line is that in a pshat level, plois does not mean wonderful. It does not mean wonder. It means unfathomable, unknown. The mitzvahs are mysterious. And because the mitzvahs are a mystery, and because we don't know what's really super important, what might not be as important, and because everything's a mystery, what looks to you to be pedestrian or trivial might actually be tremendously valuable, virtuous, and important, you better guard every mitzvah. You never know which mitzvah, at which moment, is the very thing that your whole life depends on. And so on a pshat level, it's clear that we have, uh, we look at the mitzvah as plois, and it's not unreasonable to suggest that Rashi would follow this line of reasoning, even though he doesn't explain the words Al-Kain, perhaps Rashi assumed that that's easy to figure out. Once you understand what the Metsudas David says, it naturally would uh, fit into the Pshat, uh, as Rashi articulated as well. Now I have to tell you that the Ibn Ezra, it seems to me at least, says the same thing, but he kind of rotates it. He says, Plois meho'ayin. He doesn't say the mitzvah is a mystery. He says it's mysterious to us. It's concealed from our eye. Al kol nefesh. Rabbeinu David Kimchi Radak follows the same or similar line of reasoning. He says, this is similar to the statement which is made in the 17th chapter of Deuteronomy, where the Torah talks about us, we, you and I, the Jewish people, having doubt, not being certain not knowing what exactly Hashem wants from us. It says, Ki Should this be beyond you? Not should this be wonderful to you. Should it be beyond you? What do you do? You have a lack of clarity. You don't know how to resolve this problem. What do you do? You call Jerusalem. You must go to the Sanhedrin. They will be the ones to render a verdict. They will give you resolution. The point then is, nistorois. So Radak uses yet another Hebrew word. So far we've used the word mechusa. We've used the word nifloyim. We've used the word of ne'elam. And we use the word lo noda. Now we have a fifth description. Nistorois, mysterious, hidden, concealed. And as such, Nitzorasam Nafshi Hamaskelas. Ragdak takes us in a little bit of a different direction. Still Pshat. But he says, Nitzorasam Nafshi, I guard it with my soul, does not mean 
that I'm very careful in their observance only. He says, therefore, I try my best to crack the code. I try my best to understand what might be behind the mitzvah. In other words, precisely because it seems beyond me, precisely because it seems concealed, precisely because I'm not able to properly understand and appreciate, precisely because it is not obvious, I work really hard at trying to understand it. Or Adak says, it could mean, as we just spoke in the name of the mitzvahs, it could mean I'm very careful to perform these mitzvahs. But then he adds something fascinating. He says, Mishal Yovinus HaMitzvahs Lo One who does not understand the mitzvot will never properly observe them. It's a strange statement. <laughs> because, because the whole verse is about not understanding the mitzvah. And yet, here we emphasize that if you don't understand it, you won't really do it. It seems to me what Radak essentially is telling us is that the scope and the depth of God's designs are actually mind-boggling. We don't really understand. We're not capable. The human brain has no inkling of the wondrous nature of divine wisdom. However, although we cannot ever comprehend the profundity and the depth with any kind of certainty, to the extent which we can, we should try to appreciate. To the extent possible, we should try and develop an understanding. The Rambam actually says this clearly in the end of the book of Sefer Korbanis, the end of the rules of Hilchas Tmura. The Rambam says that even though this, the, these halachot are squarely within the realm of what we call chukim, or statutes, mitzvot that are not necessarily built on what we would think are rhyme and reason. Nonetheless, kol ma'asha asha'ata yochol lotam ten lotam. What any reason you might possibly give, you should try to give a reason. You should try to understand it. You should try to relate to it intellectually also. And perhaps the reason for that is because if we're only observing the mitzvah with our hands and feet, if we're only observing the mitzvah in the rubric of action, but we don't appreciate the mitzvah, we don't relate to the mitzvah, there's a part of us that's left out of its observance. Maybe this is what Radak means when he says, One who doesn't understand it cannot fully guard it because, because to fully guard a mitzvah, you have to invest all of yourself in that mitzvah. And because we have minds and because we have hearts, if we ignore our feelings and our comprehension or consciousness, an enormous part of us isn't at the table. So we do have to work very hard to try and appreciate and understand the mitzvah, but to remember that whatever you understand, even if it's accurate, is but not even the tip of the iceberg. Because most of the mitzvah is beneath sea level. It's mechusa, it's nelam, it's nister. It's a mystery. It's really important to think you understand the mitzvah. It's really important to relate to a mitzvah. It's really important for you not to think you figured out the mitzvahs. And the Rambam in the book of mitzvahs says very interestingly that if one thinks that they actually understand the full depth of a mitzvah, they can make the mistake that was made by the wisest of people. King Solomon believed that mitzvahs should be performed because of the reasons he understood. And as such, he rationalized away the fulfillment of certain mitzvahs and in the end suffered terribly on a spiritual level on that account. And so the mitzvah always has an element of being beyond us, all mitzvahs. And the mitzvah always has to be understood or appreciated on some level. Radak introduces us to an interesting question. And although it's not actual pshat, I want to share it with you before I move on and give you a little bit of a different take on the mystery, the mystique, and the understanding of the mitzvahs. Radak says, Moshe Rabbeinu, near the end of the Torah, makes a statement. He says, Lo The mitzvah is not beyond you. It's not neflase. Ve'ech Amar David plois. Moshe Rabbeinu said it's not, and David said it is. 
How could Dovid Hamelech contradict Moshe Rabbeinu? So Radak says, Hatshuva, the answer, Masha Omer Leinifleis. When David Meshir Rabbeinu said the mitzvah is not beyond you, he was referring to the actual mitzvah. There are a lot of people who make the mistake today of thinking that mitzvahs are allegorical. That mitzvahs have a spirit. And they don't have to be held or kept by the letter of the law. You have to keep the spirit of the mitzvah. The spirit of the mitzvah is love and brotherhood. Maybe some apple pie. <laughs> Big mistake. The mitzvahs are not allegories. Chas v'sholem. That's heretical. Radak says this is exactly who Moshe Rabbeinu was addressing. Not only our generation. It's, we're not the first generation to come up with this chachmala, with this brilliant observation or idea that hmm, maybe the mitzvahs don't have to be so literal. Maybe they could just be allegorical. Maybe we can just keep them in the spirit of the mitzvah. Forget about it. Moshe Rabbeinu says right in the beginning of our national journey before we enter the land of Israel, do not try to ascribe allegorical interpretation to the mitzvah. The mitzvah is not a marshal. The mitzvah has to be understood literally. Yep, the way you read it. Like one wise person once said, which part of thou shalt not did you not understand? It's very clear. No adultery is no adultery. No pork is no pork. No working on Shabbos means no working on Shabbos. It's very simple. So when the mitzvahs are read in the Torah, they have to be read literally. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, Do not make the mistake of assuming that there's some mystique, something that's not obvious, which is what we're really getting at. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu said. Ain be mitzvahs moshal. Mitzvahs are not metaphorical. But David Amelech who said the mitzvahs are in fact to be considered beyond us in a wondrous fashion. Ah, says Radak, that refers al iker ha mitzvahs. That refers to the essence of the mitzvah, to the primary thrust of the mitzvah, val tamam, and on the reason for the mitzvah. In simple words, we know exactly what has to be done, but we don't know why it has to be done. We know exactly what Hashem wants from us. It's spelled out very clearly. There's nothing mysterious about it. Why? Now that's another question. It's exactly the opposite of people in Western civilization today who come along with all this reasoning as to why and what the mitzvah might really mean on some allegorical level and how the mitzvah is really alluding to ideas that have formed the foundation of Western civilization but are not connected to actual observance of mitzvahs. It's inside out, exactly the opposite. What to do, we know precisely. Why? Now that's a mystery. And so, let's just return to the Pasuk, understanding it as we have together on a level of Pshat. I should also point out to you, since we're talking about Pshat, that the Me'iri, Rabbeinu Menachem Me'iri, in his commentary on the Tilim, he says that the Ashleimah that ploys at Vesecha means Dvorim Mechusim Vene'elomim. And what does it mean that they are mysterious? He spells it out a little bit more clearly than the others that he said, Min hachakira ve'iyun. Do not try to philosophize. Do not try to figure out the essence of the mitzvah. I, my soul guards them. He says, that means my, I guard my soul from unhealthy investigation, from wrong philosophization. He says, because that kind of process can lead somebody Levatlam to nullify the mitzvahs. It really doesn't have to be elaborated. Things that people are saying today were already spoken about centuries ago. And according to our great Rishonim, it's exactly what David HaMelech was saying in antiquity. These are messages of the words, Peloi said Vaisecha, Alkein Nitzorosam Nafshi. Now, my friends, 
I want to take you into a little bit of a deeper journey. We're going to move into what one might call drush, homily. Rabbeinu Moshe Alshech, in his commentary on Tilim, which is called the Reimim Eskel, says something fascinating. And I want to just point out, before we go to the Alshech, that one thing we did not yet is why it's Ed Voisechov. Why your testimonies? Everything that I've shared with you so far is about mitzvahs. And yet David Melech uses terminology Ed Voisechov. So I will come back to this, but I wanted to use, just introduce it as a segue to what the Alshech is about to say. The Alshech says that the glory of God, he says, quoting our sages, is a mystery. And he says that that refers to the opening verses of the Torah, the beginning of the book of Genesis. Mibereshis, from the words in the beginning, as in the beginning God created heaven and earth. Ad hashamayim, until the Torah's narrative of the conclusion of the sixth day of creation and the entrance into the seventh day of peace and serenity, Shabbat. So Al-Sheikh says that, that is testimony. Eidu Tabriya, that is testimony of creation. However, it's Eidiyot Mechusot, it's concealed testimony. What, what does that mean, it's concealed testimony? How did God create the world? Was it a big bang? Was it an evolutionary process? There are a lot of theories out there today. Which one does Torah endorse? The only thing I can tell you with absolute certainty Torah does not endorse is the notion of a random the idea that things are random or accidental. The Torah is very clear in telling us that there was nothing that was random. Everything down to detail was ordained by the creator of heaven and earth. How did he do it? We talked about pshat before. I understand the pshat, the literal meaning of Noah was a man who lived in his time and he was a tzaddik, he was righteous. Even that's not so simple. <laughs> Even that has to be understood. Was he righteous only in his time? But had he lived in a different time, maybe he wasn't so righteous. Was it only in contrast to those around him? Or do we say, even in such a depraved time, he wasn't influenced and he remained righteous? Even the word Noah was righteous is in and of itself a source of dispute and not clear. But that would be pshat. What is the pshat? Was Noah a big tzaddik or not such a big tzaddik? We'll talk about that in Parshas Noah. There was a flood. That's literal. That's pshat. There were geysers that opened up. Thousands of them. That's literal. The heavens exploded. That's literal. The earth was covered by water. Raging water. Sulfuric water. It says it in the Pesach. It's open. There was this giant floating barge that took Noah 120 years to build, that contained within it all animals and organisms. Yes, that's pshat. You don't like it? I can't help you. That's pshat. Rabbeinu Sajigon says that if a person takes one word of the Torah, one word, one phrase, one verse, and says this verse is not to be taken literally that he or she has left the building as far as Jewish faith is concerned. He says that's apikursis. That is heresy. We, the Jewish people, believe that the Torah must be understood literally unless, unless it's told to us clearly that it's not literal. For example, when Bilam says things about the Jewish people, it says vayisa mishalo. Mishalom means, it's the word mashal. Bilhom began to use an oracle or a parable. He metaphorized. Okay, if he says he metaphorized, obviously it's a metaphor. When the Torah talks about skyscrapers, it doesn't mean they literally scrape the sky. That's obviously euphemism. But otherwise, Rapsadja says every word is literal. And we can understand the Torah on a very literal level. And there's <laughs> amazing, amazing layers of pshat. 
But when you come to the opening verses of Genesis, nobody really knows how to explain those verses. How did God make those things? What does it mean God spoke them into existence? All of it remains a mystery to us. And that, says Alshech, means that it's Adiyas Mechusais. Torah is giving us testimony. Testimony to the notion that the world did not randomly evolve and it's not an accident. And how God created planet Earth, I don't know. In fact, don't hold it against me. I don't really care. <laughs> it's not really important to me. I'm sorry. What's important to me is how I should treat you. What's important to me is how I should go about my life in a pious and observant and righteous way. That's what's important to me. And in order for me to do that, I have to know that the world is not an accident and you didn't land here by mistake. It is ordained and choreographed by the master of the universe. And that's why the Torah gives us those verses. And that, says the al is the meaning of the famous Midrashic words that Rashi opens his commentary on the entire Pentateuch with. Where Rashi says, The Torah should have began its narrative from God speaking to Moses, telling him about the first mitzvah that the Jewish people are going to be observing, namely the sanctification of time. They're still in Egypt. They haven't yet been set free to serve Hashem. They are still in Mitzrayim. It's Rosh Chodesh Nisan. And a sliver of the moon reappears in the sky. A dispute between Rashi and Rambam, whether that itself is literal or seen in the vision of a prophecy. But that's the first mitzvah. It's the first mitzvah. So if the Torah is supposed to be telling me how to live, if that's what's important to me, and that's what I think should be important to you, then why would the Torah give us a story can't understand the pshat of. Why give us all these verses if we can't even understand them? It's a really good question. <laughs> the al says, it's a great question. And the answer is, the answer is, so that people will not come to us and say, you are thieves, you have occupied somebody else's land. So the Torah begins with a narrative of creation so as to tell you that God created the world and because He created it, He is its master. And because He is its master, if He ordains that the Jewish people live in the land of Israel, that's God's business. And if other people live there for a little while, that's God's business. The truth is that the Canaanites invaded Israel at the same time that Abraham arrived. The original indigenous peoples living in that part of the land were routed by the Canaanites. The Canaanites occupied a land that was theirs because they are from the clan or tradition of Ham. They came from North Africa. The Semites were living in Mesopotamia. The Semites had control of that piece of land. Avraham Avinu is a Semite, descended from Shem. That's the irony of the term anti-Semite. Some of the world's greatest anti-Semites are actually Semites. They just don't know it. Most of the Middle East, or much of the Middle East, are Semites. But we ended up becoming known as the Semites or the Shemites because the Jewish people have that tradition. Father Abraham studied Torah from Shem. And that's, I suppose, how the story goes or continue to unfold. So Avraham Avinu arrives at the same time. Now the Canaanites who have established a very powerful kingdom and especially when Jacob leaves the land and goes down into North Africa in Egypt, the Canaanites established themselves as the rulers of this land and they remained there uncontested for 210 years. And then they got word that the Hebrews were coming home and 40 years later they came home. And some of the Canaanites fled and some of them didn't. But we reoccupied forever the land of Israel. And the point is this. God wants that business of Genesis to be part of the narrative of the Torah because living in Eretz Yisrael is a mitzvah. Because the Am Yisrael, the nation of Israel, that's the Jewish people, living in the land of Eretz Yisrael are the way God ordained it to be. In other words, why have verses describing God's creation if we don't understand those verses? And the answer is, those testimonials are indeed a mystery. We don't have pshat for them. But 
Nonetheless, I'm extremely careful. I guard them because I understand that even though these are things that are beyond our full comprehension, I must still guard myself. The Alshach goes off here on a fascinating uh, homily. And he says that David HaMelech, David HaMelech was a part of the Neshama and had part of the life of Odom Harishan, of, of Adam. David HaMelech is called Barnafli. Barnafli means a, a stillborn. David HaMelech was supposed to die in birth. And Adam, Adam, the first human being, was supposed to live for a thousand years. He prophetically foresaw that King David would die in childbirth, in birth, so he contributed 70 years of his life, and therefore Adam lives for 930 years, and David HaMelech for 70. So David HaMelech feels this connection, connection to Adam. In fact, he said that the words Adam, the word Adam, which is Adam, the name of the first human being, is actually an acronym for Adam, David, and Mashiach. So here we have David HaMelech feeling a sense of concern that he might make the same mistakes that Adam made. What was Adam's big mistake? Well, Adam, uh, Adam didn't understand why God didn't want him to eat from that tree of knowledge. In fact, it made perfect sense to him that God should want him to be wise. So he ate from the tree of knowledge. So David Amalek says, your testimonies are wondrous, are a mystery to me. They're beyond me, and therefore I'm so careful to keep them. Well, because of, because of reincarnation and past lives, because of a predispositional propensity to fall into the trap of Adam. So this is what you would call a drush, an allegory. And... Now I would like to take it in the direction of Medrash. It's interesting to note before I begin the Medrash that the, the Gemara in Shabbos, the famous Gemara that talks about the school children who were so wise that they knew how to expound the deeper meaning of olive base. It says that pay kfufa, the bent pay, the small pay, we're talking about pay, represents pep shuta, represents an open mouth. When somebody is struck by something or like wowed, what do they do? In fact, I could make it simple. Go to your iPhone and check the emoticon for wow. Type in wow and what shows up? A face with an open mouth. And it's like wow. So the Medrash actually takes it in that direction. The Medrash says this. Medrash Tillam says, Omar Moshe, Moses said to the Jewish people, Kini kol basar asher shoma For where do you find flesh, humanity, that has heard the voice of God? This is Parshish Ve'eschana. Deuteronomy 5, verse 23. Kach Omar the Medrash begins its commentary now. This is what Moses said to the Jewish people. Du'u, you must know. Ki When God created the heavens, He did not create them with audibility. There was no Doppler effect when the heavens, when the firmament became established. Ki when he created the land, the terrain that we call earth, there was no noise, no voice. And no people, no nation ever heard the proverbial voice of God. And when was God's voice heard? When God gave the Torah, that's when God's voice was heard. And this is also the meaning of the voice of God that shatters the cedars of Lebanon. This is a direct quotation of Psalm 29 in which we hear about God shattering the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them leap like a calf Levonon Vesiriain, like young wild ox, 
The voice of God strikes flames of fire. The voice of God makes the desert tremble. Kol ha Lama, pardon me. All these voices, why? What's up with all these voices? He says, Hashem oiz This is God giving His might to His people. God gives might to His people. It's interesting to note that when the Torah was given, there were ear-splitting sounds and people living in the Middle East flocked to Bilam, the soothsayer, who knew what was going on behind the curtain, so to speak. And they said, Bilam, Bilam, what is happening? Are we due for another flood? And Bilam said, no, no. Hashem owes le'amoyitim. God is giving his might. He's giving might to his people. He's giving the Torah. And it is stated clearly in Exodus 19, verse 9, it says, 1919, pardon me, it says, There was the sound. The Torah emphasizes several times the notion of sound. Therefore, David HaMelech says, he talks about these kolot, these voices, and that mikol ha-kolot yavo'u plo'ot edvosecha. According to the Medrash, Psalm 119, verse 129, is the result of what David HaMelech began in Psalm 29 when he speaks of all these voices, that all these voices brought us to an open mouth state of wonder. We were in awe. We were amazed. We were bowled over. We were absolutely wowed. That's the meaning according to the Medrash. Because your mitzvahs are so wondrous, because your mitzvahs are so wonderful. That's why I have to be so careful to keep them. And that's why Shlomo HaMelech said in his wisdom in Proverbs, guard it for it is your very life. And that's why Moshe Rabbeinu says in the same parsha, watch yourself, guard yourself, guard your very life. If you guard the Torah, so then, nafshcha atashomer. You're actually guarding your life. That's why it says, "Arkein netzarasam nafshe." In other words, when Hashem gave us the Torah, it was given in a wondrous manner, and it made us realize and appreciate how incredible and wondrous the Torah really is. And when you know how amazing and incredible and wondrous Torah is, you're very careful with its observance. You know, a few interesting points. Dalter Ebbe says in a mimer, he says that we hear at Mount Sinai the people hearing, an emphasis on the coal. He says originally they wanted to see. Seeing, as they say, is believing, but that's of course ridiculous. But seeing is very profound. You see something. Hearing it is a step removed. He said the Jewish people wanted to see as Moses saw, and it was too much for them. So they got to hear. They got to listen. They saw the sound, but ultimately, it was sound, and it reverted into the level of hearing and listening and understanding. And the voice of God resounding, it doesn't say, Koil Hashem Bikocho. It doesn't say the voice of God with His might. Rather, it says, Bikoach, with might. And the Medrash Shabbat tells us that it resounded according to the might that each person could suffer. In fact, the Medrash Rabbah suggests that women who were pregnant could have miscarried as a result of the fear of being overwhelmed by this ear-splitting sound. And so the pregnant woman heard God's voice according to the capacity of what they could suffer or bear. Everybody heard God's voice in a way that shocked them. That shocked them, but just enough to shock them. <laughs> Here's a silly joke for you person found a genie and the genie popped out and he said I can give you whatever you want but just know that your greatest enemy will get twice as much if you ask for a million dollars your greatest enemy gets two million if you ask to live for a millennium he lives two millennium and the man thought and he said scare me half to death <laughs> the point of course is that David Melech was talking about not the voice of God God's might he was talking about the might that we could bear. It brought us to the edge of our being able to suffer, of our being able to absorb. 
and in fact took us even over the edge. As the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat tells us, we expired, body and soul separated, and then God miraculously resuscitated, put body and soul back together. So the notion of this voice of God, which alludes to a whole slew of different things in, in our world, ultimately has to be reflected in the Torah we study. As the Alter Rebbe says, in Mamori Admurazak and Aktsarim, he says that the natural love, the passion that we might feel for God and godliness can sometimes be blocked by the proverbial iron wall that's created by sin. And he says that wall can be demolished by the voice of God. The voice of God, he says, is the study of Torah. In other words, with that voice, when we raise our voice in Torah study, we can break even the mighty cedars, which represent unyielding desires that can lead us down the garden path of sin. The Gemara says, in if the ugly one, a euphemism for the Yetzirah, encounters you, just bring him to the house of Torah study. He's allergic to that. Evil, lust, craving, desires, unhealthy behaviors, it's all allergic to Torah study. The Torah study gives us the ability to shatter those walls and those barriers, those obstacles, and to be able to move forward in a way that is effective and successful. So why Secha? Why testimonies? I want to conclude with something fascinating that I saw in a mimer from the Friedrich Rebbe. The Friedrich Rebbe in a mimer in Sefer HaMamorim Tafshin if my memory doesn't fail me, it was delivered on Shabbat Chalamoed Pesach, the year 1940, just after the Friedrich Rebbe had escaped war-torn Europe that was now in flames. And he, he teaches uh, in this mimer about the difference between Torah and mitzvot. And he said, the Torah is wisdom, God's wisdom, but the mitzvot are God's will. And he goes on to elaborate and explain this. And he says that there's an element of all mitzvot that are called edut or testimonies. Because he says every mitzvah bears testimony to what God wants. And he says testimony is something that has to call attention to a reality that would be unknown otherwise. For example, in the Talmud, we talk about the notion of milsoha avidali glui, which means something which will eventually be discovered. Witnesses are useless. In the end, the truth will come out. But witnesses are useful in a situation, a circumstance where the truth would otherwise not be known. How do we know what God wants? Or what is the purest expression of God's will on the face of earth? And the answer is the mitzvahs. And that's why he says the mitzvahs are referred to as edut or edvotecha. Because it is the performance of the mitzvahs which serve as testimony to exactly the way God wants this world to be. The perfect world is the world where all mitzvahs would always be observed and fulfilled in the most punctual manner. You know, the Medrash says when Mashiach will come, a person might try to pick a fruit on Shabbat, and the fruit itself would say, it's Shabbat, what are you doing? So in other words, we live in a very smart world, which will reflect the will of the Creator. And all of us will be perfectly observant, but guess what? Second account, because the fact that we are challenged today, the fact that it isn't organic, naturally easy, is what makes our mitzvahs of today so special. The fact that we believe that they are testimonies. The fact that we feel a sense of certitude that performance of mitzvahs is exactly what Hashem wants from us. And why He might want us to do the mitzvahs remains a mystery. And that's why we should be so careful and guard every mitzvah. Because every mitzvah could actually be a world of importance. And so in summation and closing, in this incredible verse, David HaMelech communicates to us the importance and the power of a mitzvah. He tells us, because it's a mystery, we must be so careful. And because the mitzvahs are so wondrous, and because the opportunity to serve Hashem is so wonderful, we should observe every mitzvah to the best of our ability. And the best of news is that through observing each and every mitzvah, we are brought closer to a time in which we will all know the presence of God, to a time in which the mysteries will fade because knowledge will become 
the only important currency in the future world that will be literally saturated in the knowledge of Hashem speedily, the Meira will be Amenu and in our days, Amen.